Thank you, Seth, very much. I sang so hard, I, I hope I have enough a voice to get through the sermon. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 this morning. Let me read this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the word of God. Thank you for coming. Please be seated. And I'd like to pray before we begin. Father, I ask that you would please grant favor and give blessing to me this morning, but not just to me, to everyone who hears this word. And I pray, help me to preach it well and help us all to receive it well. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would please heal what's broken and protect, Lord, protect your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Well, last week I provided a video. As you might recall, if you were here last week, I provided a video to begin with in order to help make the illustration more tangible. Today the illustration will be that of a broken bone. So you can be thankful that there will not be a video provided this morning to help with the illustration, right? Uh, Thankfully, me personally, I've never broken a bone. And no, I'm not about to knock wood or even look for it because I don't believe in superstitions. Uh, But um, I know that when that happens, a broken bone happens, the medical professionals provide what we call a cast. And when you have a broken bone, casts do actually two things. We, we normally think with just the one. We know that, number one, casts keep things aligned with the proper structure and support that's needed for healing. That's number one. But number two, casts also provide protection from further injury of the affected area because they're strong and they're stiff and they're hard so that we don't injure it further. Cast do, do both of those things. So as we start this month of January, and if you're new to the church, we always start January with a sermon series about prayer to start the year off right, refocusing on prayer because all things, that usually all, all disciplines, they tend to fade if we don't give attention to them And so I want to give great attention at the beginning of the year to prayer, which is so vital. And so what I'll be using is the acronym of CAST. I've titled the message this morning, Praying CAST. We're going to start with the letter C this morning of confession. The C-A-S-T stands for four different parts of prayer. You've probably heard it in the past as the word ACTS. Maybe you are familiar with this acronym. Most people use it as ACTS, but I... I like the order of cast better. We're going to talk about why 
this morning, but it's the same words if you're familiar with Acts. It's, it's, it's the same words. But I want to start with confession. The C-A-S-T stands for four parts. Confession, adoration, supplication, and thanksgiving. Four parts of prayer for ways to pray. But cast the letter C, confession, I believe is very vital for it being the first part of prayer. And I like the acronym for CAST too and the image of CAST. Well, why? Well, because, you know, the truth is if you feel like your prayer life is broken, maybe your prayer life is out of alignment, maybe your prayer life is not functioning properly, like a broken limb, perhaps, I want you to begin to incorporate the four things I'll be teaching you in the weeks to come. I know that these things will give you the structure that you need to heal maybe what's broken about your prayer life. And and they'll also give us the protection that we need so our prayer life doesn't get injured further. The two things that I cast does. So confession. Let's talk about this word confession. Actually, you guys know I like etymology. Children, what's that? Etymology is just the study of the history of words, where words came from. I I think it's got benefit to it when you study the history of a word. So let's talk about this word confession, just to start off with. It comes from the Latin word confiteri, which literally means to acknowledge. That's what the Latin word means. It just means to acknowledge, and that's where we get our word confession. Well, that word confiteri is a compound word. Remember remember English class, compound? It's two two things. Um, It's a compound word from two Latin words, con, which means with, and fateri, which is a verb, which means to admit. So it's really with admission, with, with admitting. That's really what it comes from. It, so that means to acknowledge. And naturally, when we talk about it, and when it's usually spoken of, it means the admission of guilt. Your own shortcoming. Admitting that in some way. Even in law, in, in the criminal world, they might say, we got a confession. Meaning, he told us he did it. We got his admission of guilt. Why is confession even needed? Let's talk about that. Why is it even needed in prayer? Is it needed in prayer? Do you think it's needed in prayer? Is is confession needed? Well, as a Christian, if you are a Christian sitting in this room this morning, if you're not, know that this whole sermon is your invitation. And God's always calling to you, always calling to you, not just when you're in this building where the church meets, by the way, but always. Why is confession needed? Well, the best way to find answers to questions we have about God and truth is, of course, to go to the source of all truth. So let's answer it with the scriptures. The first time we actually read the word confession, it comes up in the law. In the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. And if you know anything about that book, you know what that book's all about. That that book is all about how to properly relate to God when it comes to especially sacrifices and approaching him in right worship. That book's all about that. All the little details about what the priests are supposed to do with the sacrifices and all these things to approach God. The book is really all about, if you want to sum it up, how unholy man 
namely the children of Israel at that time, were to rightly approach and rightly worship God. That's what the book was about. My professor once told me, I had a professor in Bible college, and he said he had an unsaved friend once get saved by reading the book of Leviticus. And he said, how did you get saved from reading the book of Leviticus? And he said, well, I realized two things. God's holy, and I'm not. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, Leviticus is so hard, oh, it's so boring, why is it even in the Bible? Well, because every word of God is inspired and profitable. The word confession in that book comes up three times, it actually, it comes up in that book three times, and those are the first three times we see it in all of the Bible. The word confession comes up when God is telling Moses how to celebrate the Day of Atonement. It's one of the times we read, it's actually the second time it comes up, specifically in the Day of Atonement, one of the first times we hear the word in the entire Bible. It's when God, listen to this, it's when God is discussing what we call the scapegoat. You've heard of the scapegoat. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But let me read Leviticus 20, verses 6 through 10, and then later on, verses 20 through 22 as well. They should be on the screen behind you. Thank you very much. Listen to this. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, the portable temple. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. You see that word, Azazel? If you've got one of the older translations, maybe like a King James, or I think even the new King James, it's going to translate that as scapegoat. Why? Well, because when we found this word, translators found this word, they were like, what is this word? We don't know. As they kept reading, they were like, oh, this is a goat. They call it the scapegoat. That's why in newer translations, most of them just say Azazel, because we don't actually know the exact translation of the word. So when you see it here, it's what we normally call the scapegoat. So just know that. The other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So once for an offering for the Lord. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, this is now verses 20 through 22, and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron, look at this, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess. The second word, this is the second time this comes up in the entire Bible. That's our word. And confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. And I'm going to also read verse 33. Listen to this. Just listen because I don't think it's up on the screen. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. That's what this was for, to make atonement. 
atonement means a covering for the guilt of sin. That's what all this is about. That's what all this is about. That's what all this is about. Making a covering for sin so man can approach a holy God. And God told them how to do all this. God told them how to do all this. They didn't have to figure it out. He didn't say, come to me, worship me. You're going to have to try to figure out how to do it right. Hope it works out for you. And if you don't do it right, boy, it's going to be bad. So you better get to work. No, he said, this is how you approach me. This is how you do it. God wants to be approached by sinful man, and he gives us everything we need to do it. Isn't that good news? You don't have to try to figure it out. He's told you everything that you need to know. But guess where it is? It's here. It's not in your heart. It's not in your head. And it's not out there at Books a Million or somewhere else. It's here, except in the Bible section of Books a Million. That's where you'll find it. <laughs> the act of confession upon the head of the goat that was then cast away, that was then sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again, shows us what God does with our sins and what proper atonement is made of and made for. That's... That's, that's what the action is for. He's confessing the sins of himself, of his house, and of Israel on this animal. It's as if they're passing, and they're now being placed upon that animal. And that animal is cast out, never to be seen again. What a picture. What a beautiful picture. Imagine watching the goat walk away, too, and thinking, they're gone. And watching the goat fade off from the distance. They're gone. Praise God. Praise God. Look, I can't even see the goat anymore. And so God doesn't see our sins anymore either. What a beautiful picture. And I couldn't go on without pointing out how all this points to Christ. I'd be doing you such a disservice if I ignored this. I want you to notice, number one, the first thing that's true about this is that this animal was a goat, okay? So let's talk about that. You might think, well, yes, why is that? Is that a big deal, Cohen? It's a very big deal. Number one, the fact that this animal was a goat is gonna be brought back up, not in connection necessarily with Jesus recounting this that happened with Aaron in Leviticus, but he tells a parable in Matthew 25, it's the sheep and the goat's judgment. And it's not an accident. Jesus does speak, he speaks nothing by accident. Every word is precise, ordered, and scripture. Everything he spoke, I love that. Every word Jesus spoke ever is pure truth, like silver refined in a fire seven times. Pure, beautiful. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33, and then again I'm going to read also verse 41. But this is the sheep and the goat's judgment, this parable that he tells. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, separ as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And he goes on to give that whole parable, which you should read if you've never read it because it's so good. 
And then in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, who are the goats we just saw, depart from me, you cursed. If you want to translate it even further, it's like you cursed ones into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are the ones that have not had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the ones that are put into everlasting punishment, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are the goats, and they're called the cursed ones. Just like this goat was sent off. It's now a curse. It's got sin on it, right? What about Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment of this too because listen to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged upon a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became this goat sent outside the camp as if he was the wicked one cursed, sent off, rejected, glad to see it gone. He became that for us. Number two, notice when it comes to Leviticus that sins are put on the head of the goat. They're placed on it, as it were. And what's Peter say in 1 Peter 2.24? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you've been healed. Jesus bore our sins just like this goat bore the sin of the people. Jesus did that. See, this this scapegoat, this Azazel, points to Jesus. It points to someone greater who did this eternally. Number three, notice that the goat is sent away outside the camp into the wilderness. This is also very important because this is the place of non-blessing. Inside the camp where God's presence was and is and blessing, that represents this is the good place to be. This is the blessing. Anything that was sent outside the camp was cursed. It was bad. That's why certain things are told to be sent outside the camp. They can't be in the holy blessed place. Hebrews 13, 12 Listen to Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see how Jesus fulfills all this perfectly and makes perpetual, always, 100% atonement. No more sacrifices are needed. This goat, this cursed thing that was sent outside all approaches, all points rather to Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Jesus fulfills all this for us. It is an amen. Yes, an amen. So what do we learn with confessing sins upon this animal? Number one, confession is needed to rightly approach God. Confession is needed to rightly approach God. Confession is needed to rightly worship God. God. That's what all this was about. That's why Aaron did this. Like, you can't rightly worship me, Israel, is what was being shown and told without doing this. Your sin has to be out of the way. That's how you're going to rightly approach me and worship me. So I answered, or I mean, I, I asked earlier, rather, why is confession even necessary? Because confessions needed to rightly approach God. Confessions needed to rightly worship 
God. You're not going to be able to approach him or worship him without confession. That's why it's needed in prayer. And what is confession? Remember, it's the admittance. It's the acknowledgement that you have done wrong, that you are in the wrong, that you are the one that's guilty. So it's not a negative thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Your flesh wants to avoid it. You've seen people, maybe you've been this person, that dances around saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Maybe you work with somebody like that, just never admits wrongdoing. There's always some excuse. That's sad. And that's a sorry way to live. Because you always think you're right. You have, so, you have pride. No, it's not me, it's him. No, it's, it, was, it was this reason. No, the reason is you're a loser. I'm a loser. And we need to confess that. We need to get, to get real. Not be fake, false, phony, put up this facade that you're better than you are. You're not better than you are. You are who you are. And confessing that is how you find freedom. If you're so good and awesome, why are you here? Why do you even want Jesus? Just as an add-on or as your everything? I need him as my everything because I know who I am. And I was exposed to it through this book. Just like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress received the burden on his back, he said, when he read this book, because it showed him who he really was. And the cross is where the bonds fell off, remember? Now, let's look at 1 John 1, because 1 John 1 is two believers. See, we sometimes think confession is necessary when I get saved, and it 100% is. But confession is also needed for the saved. And we're going to talk about that even more here in just a moment. So let's look at 1 John 1, 5 through 9, which is what I read at the beginning. And read this again. It's for believers. He wrote this book to believers. You can turn there yourself and read the first couple lines. It's to Christians. Cohen, why does that matter? Because of everything he's about to say. If everything he's about to say is for Christians, then this is for us who believe, which shows that confession is still necessary for believers and should be a part of your prayer life. I actually think it should be the first part of your prayer. I think it should be how you start. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. The Apostle John speaking to them. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He starts with the character of God, what God's like. So if you're a God follower, you need to know this about God. He's light and there's no darkness in him, none whatsoever. So, verse 6 is true. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Here's God in the light. Here's the darkness, sin, all nastiness. So I say, I'm of him, I'm with him, yet live over here in this camp. He's saying, no, you can't do that. It's not possible for you to say you're of the light and love this God who's in the light and has no darkness in him at all, but you live over here and you're cool with it. I don't mean you occasionally go over here and then you're like, oh yes, that's horrible, that's nasty, oh I feel so dirty and Forgive me, I want to be in the light again. I don't mean, because that's all of us, if you're a Christian. He's talking about living here. 
You say you have fellowship with him, but you live on this side. He says, you're a liar. I don't care what you say. You're a liar, is what John's saying. So if any of you are looking up at Cohen right now saying, ooh, you, I don't like you. (laughs) I'm telling you what Jesus says. I'm telling you what the Lord has said through Scripture. So you're not actually angry at me. You need to understand that too, Christians. When you speak truth and people are like, I don't like you, I'm angry at you. It's not so much you, it's what you represent. So you need to make that clear too. I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. It's actually Jesus that you don't like. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, everybody else who's in the light, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we have fellowship with one another, all Jesus' people, and the Lord himself. And since we're over there, we're showing that his blood has cleansed us. We're showing, that's, that's why we can even be here in the first place, why we even want to be over there in the light. Because remember when you were in the darkness, you didn't like the light. It repelled you. Why? Because it exposes you. Just like roaches don't want to be exposed. That's why they always flee when you turn the lights on. They're like, we don't like this light business. We're skulky and we like to stay in the darkness. And it's just like you were when you were saved. Uh, Unsaved, forgive me. You know, I probably say roughly 10,000 words a sermon or something like that. I'm going to get one wrong. I mean, cut me some slack here, okay? I mean, imagine if your job was just talking for 45 minutes straight. You never got one wrong. Give me a little, a little grace, please, because there was one sermon. I, I made it almost sound like, when we played it back, and almost made it sound like I was pro-gay rights. And I was like, you get one word wrong, and then, you know, I'm glad I'm not international. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Why would we ever say we have no sin, especially if we walk in the light? Now, here's what we do with our sin when we're in the light. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a normal part of prayer. This is a normal part of your Christian life, confessing your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And how can he even do that? Because he's already carried that sin on his shoulders, outside the camp, cursed, took it all for us. That's why he can do that. That's why he can forgive you when you confess. And you will want to confess when you're saved. I remember going from being a non-Christian to a Christian and within just months sensing the change within myself, sensing, wow, it's crazy what I used to love, this drinking and cussing and partying and all that. Now when I do it, I feel dirty. It used to feel really good and fun and awesome. And it was like, when can I get to do it again? And now when I do it, I feel dirty. I don't even, I don't like it anymore. I feel un clean. And I feel like I want to be clean. So I feel badly when I do it. And I was just confessing, even without having read 1 John 1, 9, I just felt, Lord, I did that. I'm sorry. I don't like it. Please help me not to do it again. Just that simple prayer. Why? Because the law is written on our hearts as Christians. Sometimes you do things without even finding it in the Bible yet. That happened to me multiple times during my first year of Christianity. Why? Because the spirit was living within me. 
So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This will be a normal part of the Christian life. This will be a normal part of your prayer life too. And I think you should start with confession. Why? For this next reason. Let me now mention this. I want to use a marriage illustration. Why? Well, I believe I can biblically use marriage as an illustration concerning the topic of prayer and confession because marriage is... um, supposed to teach us something about Christ and the church, according to the Apostle Paul. There's something about marriage to your spouse here on earth that points us to a higher, better union with the Lord of heaven. There's something about your marriage here on earth to your spouse that points to something higher, the the better union with the Lord in heaven. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Let me quickly read it. And point some things out about it. So listen. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis. Verse 32, this mystery is is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, why do I bring marriage into this? Well, because your marriage, some things that are true about your marriage, are also true about your relationship with Jesus Christ. He makes it clear here multiple times. I mean, four different times. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And then he says, this is the mystery, but I'm referring to Christ in the church. I think he's saying there's something about marriage that's true about Jesus in the church. I'm, I'm a little bit dense. But if you tell me something four times, I'll usually get it. So therefore, just as you can't, listen to me, and you know this is true if you're married, just as you can't mistreat your spouse, speak harshly to your spouse, speak condescendingly to your spouse, and act in an unholy anger towards your spouse, and then an hour later, act like everything's fine and ask what's for dinner. And ask about just acting like the those previous wrongs never happened, so we can't do that in prayer either. But I think a lot of people do that. They approach prayer starting off with, God, help me with this. God, help me with that. God, do this for me. What about just an hour ago? What about earlier in the day? What about yesterday? When you blatantly sinned against me, when you wronged me so horribly, 
You don't get to just ask God for things acting like you didn't just sin against him with your thoughts and words and actions earlier in the day or the day before, just like you can't do with your spouse. You can't. Husbands, if your wife just spoke harshly to you, treated you in a childish, ugly way, did something so mean, just threw your stuff out or something like that, sure, it's been sitting there for like six months, but you were going to put it up. (laughs) And then right after that said, so, sweetie, what do you want for supper? You'd be like, I'm not even thinking about supper. You know what I'm thinking about? How just nasty you were. Or flip it around. Husbands, you're condescending towards your wife. You're mean towards her. You treat her in some rough way. You're short with her. And then you walk in an hour later and say, Hey, babe, will you please make that dish I love so much? She'd be like, I'm not even worried about food right now because of how you treated me. We're not just going to go back to normal. There's a separation here between us. There were wrongs done, and those wrongs have to be righted first. You have not said anything to me after treating me that way. And don't anybody in this room nudge the spouse, okay? Don't do that. Seriously, don't do that. I'm telling you, God's nudges are more effective than yours. When you want to nudge when the pastor's saying something, pray instead. Let God do the nudging, okay? But don't you see how this wouldn't work in marriage? You've just been wronged badly in some way. And then just act like everything's cool the next moment. It doesn't work that way in marriage, does it? There has to be, sweetie, I shouldn't have said that earlier. I shouldn't have done that. It was wrong of me. Please forgive me. I really shouldn't have done it. And I, I really am going to try to work on that. I realize it's bad. I'm sorry. I really shouldn't have done that. And even if you think the other one was in the wrong, I promise you there's something that you can find to apologize for. Sometimes you need to be the first mover. Really? Because sometimes you want that confession. Sometimes when you're the first mover, then you get it after that. So don't start with requests with God. Just like you don't want your spouse to come in and be like, hey, please hang my pants like this. Please make this for me. Or, hey, do this. You totally are not acknowledging the sin, the horrible sin that you did. That's why I don't like the acronym of ACTS. That's why I like the acronym of CAST. Because I think you have to start with confession with God. Because I promise you, since the last time you prayed, there's something you need to talk to the Lord about. I promise you. If you think there's not, you don't know yourself very well. So confession is the first step in healing. Let me just end with this. Confession is the first step in healing and protecting your broken prayer life. Just like that cast is for healing and for protection, I'm telling you, putting these things in place in your prayer life is going to help your prayer life. And the only reason, remember this though, the only reason God accepts your confession of sin against him is because Jesus was already punished for that sin. It's all possible and all made a reality because someone 
else took the punishment for that sin already. That's why he can accept it coming from you because someone else was already punished for it. All this depends on Christ who's so worthy of praise for what he did, which we'll touch on in the second part of CAST next week. Father, I thank you for this truth, and I pray, please, Lord, give us the grace that we need to, number one, make that time and see the priority of, of, of prayer and for prayer, but then when we do it, also, Lord, to do it rightly and to do it, and to do it well. Lord, help us to start out with those things that are separating us from you. Help us to start out with those things that have offended you and and help us to admit those things to you before we go into anything else, Lord, to make that relationship good and whole and right and warm as it's supposed to be. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we can even pray. It's all because of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.